Open your scripture with me to 1 John chapter 2. I think if you noticed by the reading of the passage by Steve this morning, it is a technical passage with a lot of terms. The last hour is mentioned twice, Antichrist and Antichrists, plural, uh, all these terms. And then the anointing, what is the anointing? And so all of a sudden we're moving through this letter in, in relative simplicity and now we confront uh, this, this particular section. But I want to keep it simple. What John is doing, he continues to distinguish between what is true and what is false. A distinction that is all the more vital because false teachers had sprung up within the church and were causing trouble. So since false teachers were sowing doctrinal doubts among genuine Christians, that's possible. It's possible for false teachers to come in and so those theological doubts among believers, um, John's mission was to bring them back to the truth. Matter of fact, his mission is stated, or we would say his purpose statement for the whole letter, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers. That you may know that you have eternal life. Because the false teachers came in, so doubt, and now they're wondering, are they truly born again? Okay, parts of this letter feel like exam week. John's already put forward two tests. There's a moral test and a social test. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at these. 1 John 2, verse 3, John puts forward the moral test of obedience. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. How? How do we know that? If we keep his commandments. Okay, if someone truly knows Jesus through the new birth, they will have a pattern of sustained obedience to him. Look at the second test. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 10. This is the relational test of love. It says this, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Okay, if somebody truly knows Christ through the new birth, they will love others, a distinct sacrificial love for other people. Now, John connects both of these tests, the moral test of obedience and the relational test of love to Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John 2, verse 5. By this, we may know that we are in him. That's called assurance. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, walk refers to a manner of life. These are the tests. And they're conspicuous tests, right? Obedience and love stand out. I taught at, at a college in Zambia for four years, and I preferred to test my theological students through writing an essay rather than multiple choice. Because what I, what I would come to find out is that I would understand uh, the precision to which they understood, retained, and then could then communicate that that material back to me. Uh, it takes longer to grade. So as a teacher, you're going to, you're going to work through these essays a lot in a lot more detail rather than run sort of a Scantron sheet. Do they still call them Scantron sheets? Uh, sort of the big multiple choice that I loved as a student because I could, you know, hit a bunch of C's and then, you know, D here and there and, you know, bring the Christmas tree is what we used to call it. Uh, you can't do that with an essay. 
But as a teacher, you could easily pick out the student who was proficient with saying a lot without saying anything. Right? Some, some students here are probably like, yes, in essay, all I have to do is be wordy and I'll get the points. But if, you, if, the, if, if you're writing for a good teacher, they will be able to sift out that it's simply a smokescreen for your lack of study. Okay, so the grade would reflect it. If somebody just went, got wordy on me, didn't capture the ideas, didn't retain the information, the grade reflected that. And another student who, was, who, who provided clarity and proficiency, his grade reflected that. John puts forward an extensive test, a thorough exam, not a few guesses of multiple choice. Do you attend church? Check, right? Do you carry your Bible? Oh, D. You know, do you dress up and show honor? Oh, A, right? It's, that's not the kind of test. He says this, are you obeying Jesus and are you loving other Christians? Because obedience and love are conspicuous. It's a thorough test. They stand out. And what this does is it helps us sift through all the false and empty professions of faith of those who say they are following Jesus. I don't need to ask you for sort of a little doctrinal checklist. I simply need to say, okay, are you obeying Jesus and walking as he walked? And do you love others even dissimilar to yourself? Do you love them as Jesus loves? John's not done, though. In our text this morning, he puts forward a third test. And it's the doctrinal test. Doctrine simply means teaching. Okay? And it's a test of who you believe Jesus is. Here's how it unfolds. This will be our outline this morning. First, John's going to draw a clear distinction between true and false followers of Jesus. Second, he's going to define the nature and effect of false teaching. And third, he's going to put forward two safeguards that true believers already possess, but they need to remain in. Okay, look at 1 John 2, verse 18. Several technical terms uh, that are going to be necessary for our understanding of this passage. Verse 18. Twice in verse 18, John uses a interesting phrase. Children, he's writing to believers, it is the last hour. Okay, that's strange, John, because you wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. Okay, and then he says at the latter part of verse 18 again, we know that it is the last hour. Okay, what does he mean? The last days, or hour as John describes it, are the days from the first advent of Jesus, why we have these candles celebrating his birth, to his second advent, which is his what? His return. We call it the second coming. You have the first coming and the second coming. That entire time period is referred to as the latter times or the last days or the last hours. It's a stage of major transition called both the last days and the last times. For example, Micah, who gives us one of the prophetic statements about Jesus' birth, will say in Micah 4 verse 1, he's looking forward and he sees that historical transition from the birth of the Messiah as the latter days. In Acts 2, verse 17, Peter is preaching and he quotes the prophet Joel. Joel, who looked through the prophetic sort of lens and saw something that hadn't happened yet, Peter is quoting Joel as a fulfillment of what is happening. Peter uses Joel's words and he says, 
the last days. The book of Hebrews begins by defining this period. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago at many times, right? The previous period of history. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now listen to the change. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son was born, grew up, went into ministry, starting from his baptism, and proclaimed it in person. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He, the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter sees there was a former times and a last times. Simply put, you have from creation until sort of the close of Malachi, those are the former times. And you have this, this period of inactivity. Actually, there was a lot of activity. There was just no new scripture being spoken. Some, sometimes it's, it's wrongly called the silent years. Okay, so you have this intertestamental period where the land bridge goes from Malachi to Luke. And when that transition happens, now this is the beginning of the last days. Okay, to understand what John is referring to. Both being long seasons of history. So when he says final hour or last days, it doesn't mean they're upon us. It just means we're in that stage of history. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So don't be misled simply because this historical last days is going on for thousands of years. Now, the last days, the ones that we are in since the arrival of Christ, will have last days in them. Or the final, we would say it this way, the final moments within this last days season. Blakelock said, Nothing is so damaging in the study of New Testament prophecy as to imagine that the eternal God who stands above and outside of time is bound by the clocks and calendars of men. So what will happen in the last days of the last days? Well, Jesus will return. He will raise the dead and he will judge the world. But Jesus even said this about the timing in Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day, sort of that last moment of this, the last days, but concerning that day or that hour, listen to this, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So how do we respond to that? If we're in this long historical season called the last days, but we don't know that final moment of the final hour, how do we respond? Jesus says this, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Let me ask you, from our text reading this morning, how does John know we are in the last hour? Because he's going to tell us. And what he says is he knows we're in the last hour because many antichrists have come. There's sort of this evil resistance pushing, and it's going to get evil as we push toward that final moment. Here's what we do know. We don't know when that final moment will happen, but we know the Christ arrived. Okay, we know that. We know that his name is what? What is his name? Okay, his name is Jesus. That's his human name. Uh, or Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we now we know also that other people are working to mimic and oppose him. Jesus actually said this. He says, many will come in my name proclaiming to say, I am he. He says, don't believe him. Don't follow them. These are antichrists. Okay, and it is a mark of the last hour. So look at verse 18 again. Children, believers, it is the last hour. Okay, we're in this new epoch, this new season, this new history. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist singular is coming, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Okay, so just as important as understanding what he means by the final hour, what or who are the Antichrists? Well, the word Antichrist is only used in John's letters, and it's used only four times. Three times in 1 John, one time in 2 John, and guess how many times it's used in Revelation? This is, this is actually a surprise to many. Zero. Even though any study or preaching series on the book of Revelation makes so much about this individual, it's only used three times in 1 John, once in 2 John. Technically, Antichrist means one who is against, right? Anti the Christ, or one who is opposed, an adversary. It has to do with counterfeiting and opposing. Now, even though the term, the technical term Antichrist, is not used outside of John's two letters, the idea is found elsewhere. And because John uses it the most in this letter, I want, to, I want to give some Old Testament support to where we find this idea. For example, the appearing of this individual, the Antichrist, was regarded as a sign for Daniel of the approaching end times. So John uses final hour and Antichrist together. Daniel 11.31, listen to what he says. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he again explains it with that same phrase, the abomination that makes desolate. This was at least partly fulfilled historically underneath Antiochus Epiphanes when he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig and doing other just horrific things uh, in 168 B.C. But its ultimate fulfillment was probably in A.D. 70, an event that Jesus prophesied about when Titus and the Roman army came in and destroyed the temple completely. Matter of fact, when Jesus refers to that event, he borrows Daniel's wording. Let me read to you in Mark 13, verse 14. Jesus says, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he, a person, ought not to be. Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus then predicts his own return, second return, connected to the destruction of the temple in Luke chapter 21. You can read that later and see how all these events are sort of like prophetic mountain peaks. You're seeing these events happening, but you don't know how deep or how long the valleys are in between the fulfillment of those events. Those two events happened, Antiochus Epiphanes okay, and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But then Paul will say this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4. He says this, and he's going to predict now a surge of religious evil. 
Paul writes, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The second advent, the last moment of the last days. And our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that, that, that the day of the Lord has come. There was another false teaching where they said it's already passed. You've missed it. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Do we realize that it will be difficult times that introduce the last moment of the last days? As much as we hate them, as much as we avoid them, as much as we try to counterbalance sort of our comfort and ease with discomfort, and we always want the comfort and ease size to be up here, the fact is that it will be extremely difficult times that will bring us to the most amazing moment in all of history. The last moment of the last days. Paul keeps writing, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, an individual, is revealed the son of destruction. What Paul is saying is there will be an individual, an antichrist that will appear who's a major player in ushering in the end events, who will signal the end times. Verse 4, I'm still in uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So you have this religious surge at the end times. So in the same way, John writes this. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, what does he mean by that? Well, you've heard it because Jesus prophesied it. You've heard it because Paul warned you about it. Both of those are earlier writings than what John is writing here. But as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. So all these forerunners to the Antichrist are pushing and sowing their false teaching. And John is warning his church that those are the ones who have gone out of the church and they're sowing discord and doubt. Look at verse 19. 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, the church has changed drastically since John wrote this letter. But what should not have changed is the core fundamental doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. In that day, it seems simpler. There weren't 25 churches that you, so you, you could sort of weigh out their children's programs and their teens' programs and the style of the music and say, oh, which one do we want to go to? I'm just not happy here anymore. Or the kids don't like it. And since he's seven, he should be able to direct our family to another church. None of that's happening in John's day. Just because someone leaves a church in our day does not mean they are an antichrist. Do we understand that? It's kind of the point I'm making through sort of a negative trail. There are a few right reasons to leave a church. Geographical move would necessitate that. Deviant doctrine, unbiblical philosophy of ministry, unqualified church leaders, all those would be right reasons to leave a church. Most of the unhealthy departures, however, that we see do not have to do with doctrine, but consumerism. Right? Church hopping and shopping and preferences, opinions, and styles rather than the lack of right teaching. So it's hard to discern when somebody leaves 
they have been one of the small a antichrists or if they're just unsettled. Okay, so I want to be careful that we don't run this, this teaching too far and say, oh, everybody who, who has left Highlands is an antichrist. No. But at the same time, I want to encourage you who remain, if you're in a place where there is the right leadership teaching right doctrine with the right observance of the ordinances, you are in a biblical New Testament church in the pattern of whom John is writing to. It's that simple. Now, having said that, after John draws this clear distinction between the antichrists, those who departed, and true followers, those who remained, he now assures genuine Christians with a really interesting word, and the word is anointing. Look at verse 20. He connects it with the little word, okay? But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Okay, against these teachers that have left who probably proclaim to be an elite group on whom has descended some mystical premonition to teach something false, John is letting the average church member know you've been anointed. You have the Holy One's anointing and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Here's what John is saying. They have all been anointed and therefore they do know the truth. Jesus didn't come and give that truth to an elite group, this sort of higher uh, elite group that can now teach down upon you and you simply need to trust them. No, you possess something inside of you that will validate whether what is being proclaimed is true or not. Okay, and that would be true of you right now, just as it was in John's day. Now, notice what John connects the term anointing to. What he's going to do is he's going to remove this word anointing out from sort of this mystical experience that only a few get after salvation. And he's going to bring it to every single genuine believer. Every believer, Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians, you have been, past tense, anointed. So what is the anointing? Look at what he does here. He connects it with knowledge in verse 20 and truth twice in verse 21. I'm going to to give you a definition and I'm going to read several scriptures. Here's what the anointing is. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables you to understand truth. That's what the anointing is. It is not a mystical experience. It's not for an elite group. It is for every single believer. When the Holy Spirit indwells you, he enables you to understand truth from lies. Jesus said in John 14, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay? By the way, when did that happen? He dwelled with Old Testament saints and intertestamental saints, and he was in them when? Acts chapter 2, when Peter quotes Joel, and he talks about the latter days, and now the Spirit has come upon them and indwelling them, and now they are indwelt and anointed and understand truth. Jesus said a few verses later in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will, notice this word, teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to bring back to our remembrance the truth that Christ taught. Jesus said in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Somebody who bears witness is supposed to witness about what? Facts and truths. Jesus told His disciples in John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. You hear this just this repetition? For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit is not only leading them into the truth that was said, He will also inspire them, indwell them to prophesy things that have yet to happen. Okay. Having made that clear distinction and assuring them through this word anointing, John moves to explain the nature and effect of false teaching. This is sort of the second main point. Look at verse 22. Because what John's going to do now, he's going to expose to you the actual nature of the false teaching being promoted. And, and, and here it is. Let me just jump ahead of the, the text and let you know what it is. They are denying two things about Jesus. Okay, some of them are denying that Jesus is the Christ. What does that term mean? Because it's not a last name. It's not a surname. What does Christ mean? Okay, the Greek word is Christos. The idea is, interestingly, anointing, anointed one. And it's, and it's the equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew Mashiach, which is Messiah. Christ simply means Messiah. It's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay? So they're, they're rejecting Jesus as being the single promised rescuer, deliverer, Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. But there's something else. It's not just that that they're rejecting. They're also rejecting the fact that Jesus, this, this individual who was born in Bethlehem, they're rejecting the fact that He is the Son of God. Two totally different ideas. So what John is actually putting forward as a core fundamental doctrine of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully divine. He is 100% man and 100% God. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar? Quite a way to start a sentence. But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the... What, what term does he use? He doesn't use Christ again. What does he use? The Father and the Son. So the false teaching has to do with Messiahship and Sonship. Both of those together. Verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So that's the nature of false teaching. It is about the Sonship of Jesus. John makes this clear in 1 John 5.13 in his purpose statement. Listen to what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Matter of fact, turn to 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 1. I want, I want you to see these two ideas put together because this is what John is combating. Everyone who believes that Jesus is what? Okay, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised deliverer, rescuer, has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Look at verse 5. He's going, to, he's going to now use the other term. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is what? He could have easily said Christ. He doesn't on purpose. Who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe both of those things about Jesus? He is 100% God and He is 100% human from the time of His birth. In John's account of the Gospel, he'll actually make this point in the purpose statement of that book when he says this, but these are written, everything I've just contained in this Gospel, the seven signs that, put, that, that promote Jesus as who He is, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, both terms, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Look back at 1 John 2, verse 22. I want to come back to this sort of abrupt shock and awe statement. Who is the liar? And it's important to understand that conflicting truth claims are not complementary insights, but error. You have light, you have darkness. You have truth, you have lies. Matter of fact, in this letter, John is going to use that term liar or lie several times. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, If we claim to enjoy fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie. In 1 John 2, verse 4, he says the person who says that he knows God but disobeys his commands is a liar. In 1 John 4, verse 20, he says the person who claims to love God but hates his fellow believer, his brothers and sisters, is a liar. So what shall be said of the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That person is, and I want you to see this, look at verse 22. It's not just is a liar or we lie. It's a different term. When you deny that core fundamental doctrine about the very person of who Jesus is, you are the liar. The worst paramount kind of liar. The highest degree of liar. Why? Because when you reject the truths of who Jesus said He is and you proclaim that to others, what you take is eternal life if they start to believe something different. Matter of fact, in 2 John 7, there are no chapters in 2 John, so it's just 2 John 7. John will say this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. If you do not believe that the second person of the Godhead, the Christ, the Messiah, was born and was a human, you are not saved. That's what John is teaching. That's why we call it a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. He is fully human and fully divine. He says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So as, as we move towards the final moments of the final days, church, be on guard about this kind of false teaching. Now look at the effects of the false teaching. He repeats it first negatively and then positively. Look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
That makes sense to us, right? Hopefully, Lord willing, this weekend, next weekend, my son will arrive to spend the holidays with us. We don't know. He was supposed to be here for Thanksgiving. And you understand the kind of year that 2020 has been and some of the the mandates that the Navy puts upon their personnel. Uh, So we're hoping, we've decided we're not going to get our hopes up until we see him come out at Denver International Airport. So until then, it's just a hope. Isn't a lot of life like that, right? We just keep hoping. Uh, But Joshua, Lord willing, will be here. And then if all goes well, he will join us next Sunday uh, for our worship service. And if he walks in the back doors and you spit on him and curse him and tell him to leave, how do you think that will go with the father? If you reject the son, you reject the father. Isn't, we, we get that in human relationships. If a world religion confesses to know God, by whatever term you may want to call him, Allah, but rejects the son, do they have the father? This is what John is teaching. This is what makes this doctrine so clear and so dangerous and so easily to compromise and soften on. You can just run through any world religion, any cult, and go to verse 23. No one who denies the Son, what the Son has said about Himself, He is the Christ, the Son of God. Anyone who denies that does not have the Father either. Now He's going to turn it positive. Keep reading verse 23. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He's going to teach this in John 5 in his account of the Gospel, verse 22, for the Father judges no one. Sometimes we have in our mind that when we look forward to either the judgment seat of Christ for which believers will stand or the great white throne judgment at which unbelievers will stand, we we, we envision that this Old Testament God is going to judge. That is not the case. The one who sits on the throne is the Son. And he's going to continue teaching in John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, That all may honor the Son, reverence the Son, worship the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me, Jesus said, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, with the importance of this, and eternal life hanging in the balances with all this doctrine of the Antichrist, John gives two safeguards. And this is where we'll close our message. But I want you to see these. There is an objective safeguard and a subjective safeguard for believers the church. First of all, it's something they have heard. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Okay, what did they hear from the beginning? Well, they would have heard Jesus' teaching, or at least John's account of the gospel of Jesus' teaching. Who He is, why He came to the earth. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, because this, this is the account of the Gospel. This is the good news. It leads to eternal life. Verse 25. 
Verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So rather than listen to them, listen to what I've written in the account of the gospel, listen to the apostles' teaching. Okay, that's the objective account, the good news leading to eternal life. Secondly and finally, there's also subjective proof. Now he's already hit this in verses 20 to 21. He's going to return to it. Look at verse 27. But the anointing, he comes back to it. But the anointing that you received, past tense, from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. By the way, you can't, you can't take this too far because Jesus Christ also appointed disciples and apostles and in Ephesians in Christ's church of which he is head. He has appointed prophets and teachers. Okay, so there is a place for those. But understand this, in, in this gospel about who Jesus Christ is, you have no one to teach you because the Holy Spirit will give you clarity on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have no need that anyone should teach you. You have no need for those false elitist groups trying to tell you something you don't know because you already know the truth. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Again, verse 27 connects anointing with what words? Teach and teaches. Church, have you lost sight of the end? Have you lost sight that where we live right now and breathe and minister is the last hour? Have we become crippled by fear or have we lost hope because we're simply looking at today or next week or next year, forgetting that as believers we are always looking forward? When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we look back and remember what He did, looking forward, waiting for His return. And are you allowing the Word of God to be daily pressed into your heart and affirmed by the anointing you have received? Matter of fact, I'm going to end with this and then we'll have a moment of silent meditation and then Lloyd will lead us in the doxology. But let me read to you what Jesus prayed for us, for you, in John 17, beginning in verse 15. Jesus prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That's truth. And that is a letter to the church. But if you are here this morning and you are not sure your sins are forgiven, that you have never tasted the joy of having your sins forgiven by the gift of God's grace, would you please talk to me afterwards? And if I can't talk to you at that moment, I will, I will assign you with someone, a man or a woman, to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because it was the Father in John 3.16 who says, For He so loved the world that He gave what? His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life.